is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Can $17 million worth of TV ads sway enough voters to side with Rick Caruso in the L.A. mayor's race? Well, he apparently hopes so, which is why he is launching a big advertising blitz as he trails in the polls. We'll go in-depth into whether flooding TV sets with ads is going to pay off in the end. Former President Trump seems to be embracing the big QAnon conspiracy theory about him. We look into why. And a judge has finally appointed a special master to review those Mar-a-Lago documents. We talked to a lawyer who worked under that person. If you're hoping a calming of home prices will make for a smaller mortgage payment, you're out of luck. The rates keep going higher. The line to walk past Queen Elizabeth's coffin so long the wait is more than a day. People say they're okay with it. Doctors and health officials getting more worried about the rollout of the new COVID shots. We'll explain that. And then scientists at JPL hoping to make a big discovery on Mars. We start with the L.A. mayor's race and Rick Caruso's advertising spending. Matt Lasenye is a political science professor at Long Beach State and an expert on local and California politics. Matt, thanks for being with us. So history shows, I suspect, that in some cases, uh, people who want to try to buy an election by spending a lot of money, it works. In many cases, it doesn't work. Is it going to work now? Uh, well, that's a good question. Uh, the first thought that comes to mind is uh, some of the biggest spends by candidates have been by losers, right? And so the amount of money spent tends to indicate the closeness of a race. What we have uh, that's a little different this time is that this is a self-funded candidate. So the amount of spending may not actually indicate that it's a tight race. It's just that he's got deep pockets. Um, so that, that would be my take on that. You know, people always say the ads don't sway me. I, I don't pay attention to them. There's so many of them anyways. But, I mean, they have to work for some people or, or they wouldn't make these buys, right? Absolutely. And there's a couple numbers uh, from the recent L.A. Times poll that, that stick out to me, if I'm either camp. Uh, that poll says that amongst registered voters, uh, of roughly 25 percent of L.A. registered voters are undecided. That's a number that would really bother me if I was either camp because it says this is up for grabs. But the other number is amongst likely voters. When they estimate um, amongst that population who's likely to vote, roughly about 15 percent are undecided. And that indicates uh, that the ads, that's who the ads are, are targeted to reach. But if they break along the lines of decided voters, uh, the, the ads probably aren't going to sway this race away from Karen Bass. And doesn't it work the other way, too, that don't people sometimes just go, wow, I mean, we can't get rid of this person. They're on every second that I have my TV or radio on. That's right. Um, You know, well, so there's kind of two things here. There's people at this point, both camps are looking for folks who are undecided. They want to reach out with a message, hopefully, that resonates, whatever it is, on an actual issue. Uh, for the rest of us, and even amongst those undecided voters, they will be exhausted by all the political ads that we'll see, but in particular, these buys from Caruso, he's going to be wall-to-wall. And so, again, you're looking at almost 85% of the electorate will just be exhausted by these ads. What about a trust issue? And we've seen this in, in some of the, you know, when you, when you do all the man on the street stuff. How do you feel about the election? People will say, well, you know, I don't trust politicians, so I don't trust Karen Bass. Is there an I don't trust Rick Caruso because he used to be a Republican or I don't trust him because he's a billionaire? 
Yeah, you know, that's a great question. So it gets to uh, will voters know that, right? So a strategy you might say for Karen Bass's campaign is to make it known that he switched his party registration. However, what breaks for Caruso is that we're in a moment, several elections that is, where people are rejecting experience and tending toward business people and celebrities. And so the I don't trust, you know, the incumbent or or professional politicians thing really breaks in his favor. People, I think, do always wonder when someone like Caruso is spending 17 million on this just one buy, by the way. I mean, in aggregate, he's going to end up spending millions and millions more. I think people wonder why. I mean, the job doesn't pay that much. <laughs> yeah, that's a great question, right? And we, we love to say follow the money and, you know, folks, whether they follow politics or not, go, well, what's the, who's, who stands to gain? And, you know, your question reminds me of the half a billion that Michael Bloomberg spent to win American Samoa. And so I think people say, is the office worth it, right? The salary isn't going to recompensate this person. And if you really distrust political elites, nothing says political elite like $60, $70 million out of your pocket that you're not even going to miss, you know, to spend on the potential to become mayor of L.A. and catch a ton of heat from everybody. Uh, It does raise questions. And to the skeptic of political elites, I think there's almost no bigger statement of, you know, you distrust the incumbent. There's like this billionaire that's, that's trying to buy an election. And does that foster trust? Matt Lasenye, political science professor at Long Beach State, still one yard sign out there says Bloomberg on American Samoa. Yeah, yeah. Couldn't Bloomberg Holding have on. just? Couldn't he have just bought <laughs> American Samoa? We have a debate, by the way, <laughs> we coming do. up on. Uh, not, We're going to ask these not, two not why you they want this job. Not, yeah, not you and me, but it's going to be Caruso and Bass, and uh, that's going to be on Thursday, October the sixth, at uh, five o'clock, live on the radio. Former President Trump seems to be embracing and endorsing the QAnon conspiracy theory. Mr. Trump this week reposted on Truth Social an image of himself overlaid with the words, the storm is coming. Now, that refers to his alleged final victory when his opponents supposedly will be tried and maybe even executed. Mia Bloom is professor at Georgia State University and co-author of Pastels and Pedophiles, inside the mind of QAnon. Thank you for being with us. Um, You know, whenever one thinks that Mr. Trump hasn't gone or has gone as far as he could possibly go, he always tends to go a lot farther, I think. Um, This whole notion of him reposting this image on his own social media with the storm is coming, and I just described what the significance of that is. Uh, I mean, I, I can't even... Think back to anyone who has ever been president of the United States who has ever done anything like that. Can you? Uh, looks like we're having some trouble with the uh, line there. Yeah. Mia, can you hear us? I'm not sure if you're hearing me because you Yo. guys were coming in and out. Oh, we the can hear you just fine. Yeah, the last well, thing I heard you say is that President Trump is doing things that are unprecedented. Yes, uh, yes, that was that was that was it in a nutshell. Yes. So 
in, when you look at the this QAnon conspiracy theory, I'm fairly certain that when it emerges in October 2017, former President Trump probably didn't know anything about it because, of course, it emerges in the underbelly of the Internet on these chans, which you kind of had to be male between 18 and 30. So I don't think he knew about it. But when they started showing up at Trump rallies in Florida in October 2018, basically a year later, he had to notice them because, you know, they, they're They've got cues on their clothing and they're holding posters. And so it's fairly certain that he knew early on that he had the support base. But then he started to try to curry favor with them. So, for example, with plausible deniability, the cue drop would say, as proof that President Trump is our savior, he's going to say, you know, hippity hop. And on the balcony of the White House during Easter, he's got the Easter bunny. He goes, I like to call him tippy top or whatever it was that he was supposed to say in order to wink, wink, nudge, nudge towards QAnon. But he's been a little bit more bold of late on Truth Social, actually adopting the QAnon memes and using the language and the framing that they've been using in their conspiracy theory. Remind us about the danger about doing that, because a lot of QAnon people were there on January 6th. A lot of them have been, you know, alleged to have committed all sorts of crimes. And then and then what, where did this come from? Again, you said 2017, but they basically think what, that there's like a cabal of pedophiles out there and Trump is someone and the only person out there who can break that down? Absolutely. So in October 2017, the first of these Q drops emerges that predicted that Hillary Clinton was going to be arrested the next day. And of course, that didn't happen. And then subsequently, there were in excess of 4,500 of these Q drops, and they were really hard to figure out. And so it was kind of like a puzzle. They were very awkwardly written. And so what ends up happening is there is this underlying belief that there's a global cabal of elites, or as Marjorie Taylor Greene likes to call them, a cable uh, of these elites that are <laughs> high-powered uh, Hollywood the Democrats, some notable Republicans, and the British royal family who have been controlling the world since time immemorial, pulling the strings, and that only President Trump can save the children and stop them. And so they've elevated him to this martyr-like status. You know, the, the your book title, which says in part, Inside the Mind of QAnon, take us a little bit inside the mind of somebody who claims to be a uh, an adherent to the QAnon, I, I don't know, do you call it a philosophy? What do you call it? Well, I mean, it's definitely conspiracy. a conspiracy theory. Yeah, a but conspiracy become, theory. But if you look at some of the polling that has been done by the conservative think tank, American Enterprises Institute, or for the Institute for the Study of Religion, they've done this polling. And if this polling is representative sample, we are looking at as many as 30 million American adults that believe in this conspiracy theory. So what we said in the book, Dr. Moskalenko and I, is that you probably, someone in your family or your friendship network or at work, believes, if not the entirety, some portion of it. And that's pretty scary because we've never had like a terrorist group that's had 30 million people. So that would be very dangerous. But I think what we do see is that a lot of people um, during the pandemic in particular were very uneasy. There was a lot of misinformation out there. People were online a lot. And according to the Wall Street Journal, there was a 600% increase just in March 2020 uh, in interest in QAnon. And I think so it's highly correlated to the pandemic and lockdowns. But isn't it, it, but is it also correlated to, to I, I don't know, I guess at some level, bad education in this country? I mean, if, if an adult 
who has gone through school, provided they've gone through school, and I'm not talking necessarily about higher education, but just high school level, if they emerge from that educational experience and they still embrace all of this nonsense, what does that say about how well they were educated? Well, I mean, what's interesting is when we did the book, you know, we also started from the position that um, these were low information voters. These were people who were kind of, you know, not too bright. And then when you start looking at some of the people that believe in QAnon, there was a woman who had a master's degree from Harvard University. So I think it's what, is it, what does that, that say about Harvard then? I mean, come on. I mean, okay. if someone has a master's from Harvard <laughs> and they believe, for example, that the earth is flat, should know better. You know, then shouldn't they know better? Yeah. Well, I think the way that we framed it is that QAnon is a very widely based conspiracy theory. It's almost like the Anna Merlin from The Atlantic called it a a conspiracy singularity. What it's done is it sucked in a lot of conspiracies and conspiracy theories that have existed for 20, 30 years. So this idea about the John F. Kennedy assassination or that the moon landing was faked. These conspiracies far predated QAnon. But what QAnon does is it provides an umbrella and a welcoming milieu. But not everybody who believes in QAnon believes in all of it. So some of the more ridiculous things like uh, that there's lizard people, like that movie, you know, They Live, that this is, or they actually believe in that, or that they believe that um, the earth is flat. Not everybody believes in that, but there are different shades of QAnon belief. But if you start from the premise that we would probably all agree that, you know, child trafficking is a bad thing, no one's going to argue against it. So I think that they start from a position, and I, I'd like to believe that not the influencers who are monetizing it, manipulating, not Trump, you know, not Sidney Powell, not Lynn Wood, not General Michael Flynn, but the average person who believes in it probably came to their belief from a good place, like that they wanted to help the children. You mean mm-hmm. there, there aren't lizard people? Well, the way you find them, the eyes blink sideways. Oh, So just course. look for that. Uh, Mia Bloom, <laughs> professor at Georgia State, co-author of Pastels and Pedophiles, Inside the Mind of QAnon. And coming up a bit later, the line is so long to visit Queen Elizabeth's coffin that it might take more than a day to see it. And is there or was there ever life on Mars? Some new findings suggest that that answer could be yes. Lizard people? No, not lizard people. (laughs) Right now, federal judge has appointed a special master to review the documents seized at the former President Trump's Mar-a-Lago estate. Raymond Deering, U.S. District Judge for the Eastern District of New York. Uh, Kevin O'Brien is a white-collar trial lawyer, former federal prosecutor, actually worked for Deary. Kevin, thanks for being with us. So what can you tell us uh, about the judge? My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Uh, Well, I think the significant fact is he's the... He's a straight shooter. He's not going to be influenced by the politics or PR of the moment, and uh, he'll do his job. He's a former U.S. attorney, and so he knows all too well that this criminal case, which has been interrupted, is pressing, and then he needs to work expeditiously to make sure the investigation can resume without any damage. Uh, to the investigation. But Kevin, does he have to do this all by his lonesome? I mean, there's like 11,000, I read, uh, documents. Does he have to Does he have to go through all this by himself? I think he's allowed to hire a staff, small staff. He'll probably have one or two or more junior lawyers helping him, maybe some non-lawyer people, uh, 
you know, uh, paralegals, people to organize the files, whatnot, and make sure everything is in order. Someone also has to keep track of the security clearances, which are are going to be, um, um, at least at first, challenging. Some of these documents are so highly sensitive that only uh, a handful of eyes, is that a correct expression? A handful of <laughs> a pair of eyes yeah. uh, are a lot. You had to be read into it, basically. (laughs) All right. I've seen some comments that that he's very methodical, and and that's coming from a place for people who are worried about that it's going to take forever to do this, and that to the Trump team, that might be the point. You know, delay, 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 and then we're in this election territory. Sure. I think there may be some ways around that, though. One is to sort of do it in stages. And um, what might make particular sense here is to focus on the hundred or so documents that DOJ itself claimed were the most sensitive and the most necessary to their investigation. You do you deal with those first and you um, do what has to be done and then you move on to the other uh, 10,900 or whatever it is. That might make a, a, a heck of a lot of sense, given the, the time pressures here. But you're right. That's a large number of documents. And uh, if he tries to do them all at once, I think it's going to take a long time. OK, but let's say uh, he segregates uh, 500 documents and he says, no, no, these are OK now for the DOJ to use in its ongoing criminal investigation. Why do I think that? rather than it then going forward, special master or not, that the Trump folks are going to come up with a reason to appeal that. Can they? Uh, I think they can. I mean, the, the process is is more uh, multi-layered than people realize. He is working at the behest of the judge, so he has to take his conclusions back to the trial court judge who will make the ultimate ruling. And depending on the circumstances, her decision might be appealable to the 11th Circuit. Um, These stages, uh, I'm sure the government will try to insist that these uh, stages be expedited. But still, it's going to take, um, um, you know, a few weeks, certainly, maybe a few months to get through all of them. I think the time budgeted for this was November, and that just that just deals with Deary's initial review. It doesn't deal with any of these um, appellate issues, so to speak. All right. Kevin O'Brien, white-collar trial lawyer, former federal prosecutor, worked for Deary. Kevin, thanks. This is KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Going house hunting this weekend. Might see price cuts on homes that caught your interest. There's been a lot of those little signs, the A-frames downtown, like everyone's trying to unload a condo right now. Uh, Prices have been flattening, dropping in some instances in Southern California and across the country. But there's always a but. Yeah, and and it's a big one. It doesn't mean your potential new uh, new mortgage is going to be cheaper. That's because the 6% mortgage rate is back, and that's for the first time since 2008, 
With us is Todd, uh, Todd Metcalf, who's ha- housing economist for Moody's Analytics. Todd, thanks for being with us. So, uh, wow, first time since 2008. So we're talking about 6% mortgage. So walk us through what that means for, say, an average price house in this country with, what, a 20% down payment? What are we talking about in terms of monthly payments, roughly? So uh, in terms of monthly payments now for average in the country, now, of course, California is a lot higher than that, but the average in the country uh, monthly mortgage would be about just under $2,000 a month now, Um, whereas a year ago, uh, it was actually closer to $1,100 a month. So a very big difference. Now, not all of that is interest. Some of that's also house price appreciation. And then we do California and we get into this position where we frequently comment that how does anyone afford anything here? Because they just can't, basically. Yes. And, and looking at California um, for a, a typical house, you'd be looking at uh, a more monthly mortgage payment of about $4,200 a month um, versus a year ago uh, only being about $2,600 a month. So a very large increase. So, wow. so actually, that, that begs the question, who can afford to buy a house here? Well, um, <laughs> California is, is, is interesting. It has not been affordable uh, from a price standpoint for a very long time. Um, but California's wages are significantly higher than much of the rest of the country. And um, if you listen to much of the rest of the, the, the country, oftentimes the narrative is that work from home is the reason why house prices have gone up. And oftentimes people will say, all the rich Californians are moving into Boise or Phoenix, or basically take your pick of some of the, uh, the markets that have had the biggest appreciation over the last year, and they're driving up prices. And, and part of that is just because um, those people do have higher salaries um, and work from home has allowed some people to move from the coast into those markets. So you mentioned the house appreciation. Are, are the sellers trying to make some cuts because they realize the situation and because the rates get too high and those monthly payments get so high? And then you've got a lot of people sitting on the sidelines going, you know what, I'd like to, but now is not the time. Well, so inventory is coming up. Um, the, it's definitely depends on on the local market, but sellers don't have the power that they had just a few months ago. And so you're not seeing people waive inspections anymore. You're not seeing those types of um, uh, concessions being made by the buyers that they were. Um, Sellers tend to try, sellers don't like cutting prices. That doesn't mean that they they can uh, necessarily keep them high or keep them where they would be. But yes, we are also seeing sellers having to cut prices. Uh, now, and of course, if I'm correct, with mortgage rates now at at their highest since what 2008, I said right, uh, rental prices go up too, right? Because if you can't afford to buy a house and you have to have a roof over your head, you're likely to go to uh, an apartment, rental apartment. But those rents are going up too, aren't they? So rents have actually um, been been rising very drastically uh, this year, and 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 that has happened. Uh, the the interest rates now they've exceeded six percent. It's partly a measurement. Um, they actually exceeded six percent on a daily basis back in June, 
Um, the, the news stories now are 6% because it, on a weekly basis, it's the first time um, that they've exceeded 6% since 2008, as you had mentioned. Um, so this is actually already playing out and has been playing out for, for quite a few months. Todd Metcalf, housing economist, Moody's Analytics. With the funeral for Queen Elizabeth set for Monday, thousands upon thousands of people are lined up in London to pay respects by visiting her coffin, which is now lying in state in Westminster Hall. Line got so long it closed for more than seven hours because there were so many people opened again. But the wait is said to be very, very long, maybe more than a day. Jack Kessler back with us from the UK, writer, columnist, author of the Evening Standards West End Final Newsletter. Jack, thanks for being here. I remember some some commentary on one of the networks here a couple of days ago before this happened, when, when the coffin was on the way to Westminster Hall. And, and they said, you know, we've been warning people that there was going to be crowds for days now. We said, expect this. And then the, the reporter was saying, and now there's some 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 like some whispers that maybe no one's going to come, like not no one, but maybe it's not going to be a huge. But they came and you heard all those people there. I mean, you go through the line, and say, how long are you going to stay? And they say, as long as it takes. Good afternoon. Yes. Um the crowds have stretched roughly five miles along the River Thames from Westminster and into uh, southeast London. Um, and at one stage uh, today, they closed for several hours the, uh, the queue as it, as it reached roughly uh, 12 hours. Um, it's, uh, it's been quite remarkable. People want to pay their respects. People want to feel like they've sort of matched the moment. Do people bring, I, I would imagine they would, do they bring like their own food and stuff? I mean, 24 hours, even 12 hours is a really like a blanket or yeah, something, long time. You know? What's, which actually makes me think, what is the weather like there now? It's, uh, it's definitely autumn. Uh, I mean, people are bringing food, they're bringing coffee, but, you know, the great British public are fairly resourceful. People are ordering <laughs> food to be delivered to them uh, <laughs> along the line. Um, capitalism always finds a way, even in difficult times. <laughs> That's good. That's great. You know, you get Grubhub or DoorDash delivered to your spot <laughs> in line while you wait for half the day. I, I have a question, Jack, about Westminster Hall, uh, because to a lot of Americans, if they haven't been there, you know, it sounds kind of very institutional, but it's an incredibly historic place. Can you give us a sense of, of what Westminster Hall, where the Queen's coffin is going to be uh, lying in state, a little bit of its history? Uh, yes, I can. I, um, it's the building was um, constructed under the reign of William the Conqueror's son. So we are talking quite a long time ago, and it's got one of the oldest medieval roofs in in Europe. Um, it's a spectacular building um, as, as part of the parliamentary estate, and that's where the Queen's been lying in state. She'll be there for four days before the coffin is taken to Westminster Abbey down the road, which is where the funeral will take place on Monday. What do we know about what that funeral is going to be like past the, the idea that, you know, so many world figures are probably going to show up to this? It's going to be a world event. Um, as you say, uh, he heads of state have been invited. Um, there'll be a slightly strange scene of various presidents uh, emperors even sitting on a coach on the way to Westminster Abbey, but rest assured, President Biden will has been given special dispensation to uh, <laughs> take his own his own way to Westminster Abbey. But you know, it's it's I think it's testament to the incredible soft power that the British royal family, and in particular 
Elizabeth II um, enjoyed um, that everyone really wants to be there to pay their own tribute to, you know, a, a, a sort of a beacon of stability, really, for, for much of the world for the last 70 years. You know, I was going to ask you, Jack, uh, if anti-monarchists are getting caught up in this, too, to some degree. I, th- I mean, clearly there is. Not everyone in Britain is a monarchist, and you'll have soft monarchists, and you'll have soft Republicans. Um, but I think there is, in some ways, a distinction between the royal family and the queen. Um, because, I mean, in layman's terms, pretty much everyone likes the queen. Um, and um, it's going to be a bit of a shock when you know the monarch is not the queen. It's generally... Um, because it has been in everyone's memory for so long. Um, But I wouldn't underplay the popularity of King Charles. He has, I mean, he's certainly a well-practiced heir to the throne, and he has a different style to the Queen, of course. Um, But he is um, a popular figure in this country, too. Does it feel in some way also just kind of like a a culture shock on the world stage. I wonder, I've seen some people writing about, you know, she gave almost outsized importance, like worldwide to the UK. Not that it's not a great country, not that it has a big military because it does, but it's still in a, you know, it's a group of islands, right? Like, does it feel different now in, in one way or another? It's certainly a, test of um of a constitutional monarchy and one that in, enjoys outsized influence uh, beyond its shores um and it will be interesting to see what happens next in terms of commonwealth countries so that's uh, nations around the world most famously um australia canada new zealand but also uh, other countries uh, in uh, africa as well um whether they choose to continue to remain part of the Commonwealth. The Commonwealth was um, a huge uh, project of of the Queen, um, something that was very close to her heart. And um, this is a period of transition, but also not because, you know, it's not like your presidential election where there are weeks before the new president is sworn in. The phrase, the king is dead, long live the king, is uh, renowned for a reason. It's, It's instantaneous. And we sort of wait and see what happens. You know, I was going to say that in, you know, in private families, when somebody dies, a loved one, there's a period of mourning and people tend not to go to work or whatever until there's an actual uh, uh, funeral service, burial, cremation, whatever. But uh, we've already seen uh, TV images of King, now King Charles, doing sort of business stuff. Uh, And that's because he's as head of, of state, he has to do things regardless of the fact that his mother just died, right? You're right. I mean, we ask an extraordinary amount of these people. They're, they're, they're treated very well generally, but we can't forget that Queen Elizabeth was not only a monarch, she was a matriarch, she was a grandmother. And this is a family in mourning. Uh, um, but you also see the, you know, the, the monarch doesn't have power in the say in, in the way that an absolute monarch does or uh, a directly elected president does. But, you know, last Last week, we had a, a new prime minister um, appointed by Her Majesty the Queen um, and uh, various other um, duties that need to be taken place. And I think it's a, it's a mark of 
just what we as a country ask of our royal family, in particular the monarch, that um, this is this is really what duty looks like. Jack Kessler from the UK, writer, columnist, author of the Evening Standards West End Final Newsletter. Jack, thanks. This is KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Doctors and other health officials say they're getting worried about errors in administering the new COVID vaccines. Expert panel that advises the CDC recently expressing concerns about the challenges of keeping as many as 11 different brands and formulations of vaccines, keeping them all straight as the doctor's offices and the pharmacies give different versions to different groups. For example, Moderna's new bivalent booster is distributed in vials with dark blue caps, the same as its product for kids 6 to 11. Dr. Brian Labus is an epidemiologist and professor in uh, UNLV's School of Public Health. Doctor, thanks for being with us. You know, I I got my booster uh, last week, and the the pharmacist's aide was complaining that this was Pfizer, that it, it they had to have two people verify each shot because he said the vials were identical to the the non Omicron uh, tweaked. Uh, booster, right? Uh, except for the wording, which was very, very tiny. And so they were concerned that they were giving the right vaccines to the right people, right? So why is this happening? Why why can't this be done in a way that's pretty simple for anybody to do? Well, this is the challenge of rolling out vaccines across multiple companies and changing the vaccine from the monovalent to the bivalent one. Um, it just takes time for us to figure out what those challenges are and do it in a way that's not going to put people at risk. So uh, I, I don't think there's any intent to make things complicated. Uh, that's just a challenge of rolling out a vaccine program. When we say put people at risk, what could happen? I mean, if you give a kid like the full dose, that's like a problem. Well, it's not like another medication where you're going to overdose from a vaccine. The concern is you're either giving not enough of the dose so you don't have a response, so it's like getting a shot with nothing, or you give somebody a a higher concentration than they need. The risk at that point is that they could have a greater risk of side effects. It doesn't mean anything bad is going to happen. It just means something bad could potentially happen, and we want to avoid that if possible. You know, the other thing that I was reading this morning is, I think it was up in the Bay Area, uh, that some of the uh, pharmacies there, uh, people wanted to get, for example, Moderna, because, I don't know, for whatever reason, they like that brand. Uh, and they couldn't because... They're was tired a, of Pfizer. Yeah, they're tired <laughs> of Pfizer. The yeah, and, and, they, and there was a shortage. Of, it doesn't really matter, does it? It doesn't. The CDC originally said you had to stay with the vaccine that you originally got. Uh, but months ago, they said the vaccines are basically interchangeable. So you can mix and match those vaccines. Now, it was something that initially we just didn't have the data to support the mixing and matching. Now that we do, it's not a problem to get one of either type. It's the same thing with any other vaccine. Nobody's going into their pharmacy and saying, last time I got this brand of flu shot, I'd like a different one or I'd like the same one. Uh, it's just uh, a little more in people's mind now with COVID because you actually know the manufacturer. So why do people think that, you know, they have to make a switch at a certain point? Like they've heard, oh, Moderna gives you a a bigger immune response when you get your booster. Like, okay, if someone coughs directly in your face, is it really going to matter which one you had? The vaccines are interchangeable. You could take one from one company and one from another company. It's not going to change the immune response. But I've heard all sorts of stories out there, people saying that I had a bad reaction to this one, so I don't want to get it, or they think mixing them up gives them better protection. None of those things are true, but there are a lot of different stories out there. And if people want to get the same one, it's not a problem. If they have a choice, it's not a problem. But in the end, it really doesn't matter. Isn't the biggest problem, though, uh, that not enough people have been getting boosted to begin with? 
Well, that's been a problem throughout. We've got roughly half the country willing to get vaccinated and the other half not willing to. And that's carried on into the original rounds of boosters. And now it will carry on as we have this new booster. So that's that's one of the big challenges that we continue to struggle with is getting people to get vaccinated. The scheduling of this, you know, keep it a, a few months out from from whatever your last one was. But now good or wait till October for the new Omicron booster? I mean, what what do you think? Well, it's not like the flu shot where we know the kind of the timing of flu season. We don't know when that next wave of COVID is going to come. So it makes sense to get the shot when you're eligible to go out and get it before COVID is in your community because that's going to give you the best protection. You want to be vaccinated in advance of it arriving, not once it gets there and starts spreading already. But here, of course, is, again, where people hear the messaging I suspect they want to hear, because as I'm sure you know, a few weeks ago, uh, a lot of officials in Washington, uh, I I think even Dr. Fauci had said, well, you know, we're probably moving to a yearly shot. And that's going to mean, right, that if in six, eight, nine months, a new variant comes along and it does require another one, then people are going to come back and say, oh, you see, uh, they told us the wrong information again. Now we have to get another shot. Well, I think we've kind of known that all along, that if COVID became something that was endemic, we would continue to get vaccinated. But we didn't know exactly what was going to happen. All we can do is say, here's what we know right now, and here's the recommendation. Early on, we also had a very limited amount of vaccines. So it wasn't like we were talking about vaccinating everybody in the country once a year. We were trying to get that first set of shots out there. And then when that changes, people get upset thinking that what they heard isn't going to change. But that's not the case. As the virus changes in our community, as the vaccine's more available, we change our schedules to match that to provide the best possible protection based on the most recent scientific information. Dr. Brian Labus, epidemiologist, professor, UNLV's School of Public Health. One of the big mysteries of our solar system is whether there is or ever was life on Mars. Plenty of movies have been made about Martian invaders, but so far, it doesn't seem like there are any humanoid creatures on the planet. There is a find by NASA's Perseverance rover that sparked some big interest from the scientists, though several rock samples found to have organic material. Sunata Sharma, mission scientist at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Thanks for being with us. So what do we mean by organic material? Yeah, great question, and it's great to be here. So organics are commonly called the building blocks of life because all life as we know it is made up of organics. And when I say organic matter, I mean uh, molecules that have carbon and hydrogen, and often they have other elements like oxygen, nitrogen, uh, phosphorus, and sulfur. And it's important to remember that in this case, organic matter can also be made by chemical processes that are not related to life. So for instance, they can be made through water-rock interactions, and they're also found in interstellar dust. The type of organic molecules that we found here, we, they're from a class called aromatics, and they show up really well for the instrument that detected them, which is called Sherlock. I'm curious, when we analyzed rocks that were brought back from the moon, did we find any uh, organic material? No. I don't actually know that. I don't know too much about some of the lunar samples. I'm very Mars-focused, actually. <laughs> no, I, I, I ask because I'm wondering whether or not, uh, because the excitement is, you know, does this mean that there was life in some form on Mars, uh, whereas we never thought that there was life on the moon. So I was kind of wondering whether this was a, a common, if you want to use the word common in quotes, thing to find on the surface of, of bodies that are not the Earth. Yeah, I see what you're saying. So I would say that we would expect there to be uh, some amount of organics because, as I mentioned, they're in interstellar dust, for instance. And we know that they can be formed without life. And we think there were 
aqueous or water-based interactions with different types of rocks on Mars. So it's conceivable that they would be formed. But what's really exciting about this finding in particular is the organic matter that we found was some of the highest concentration that we've seen in the mission to date. So when I saw this data come down, I looked at it and I was like, my jaw dropped because mm -hmm. these signals were like off the charts, basically. And the other part is where we found these signals. So one, we're in an area called the Delta Front. And this is a part of the mission that I think everybody who's interested in uh, searching for signs of life on another planet, potential signs of life, astrobiology, things like that. This is something we've been looking forward to. And um, it's because deltas, whether on Earth or on Mars. So on Earth, we think deltas are places where a lot of signs of life are um, preserved over long periods of time. And so getting to the delta here was super important to us because we think if we would find potential biosignatures or signs of life, this is where we would find it. So finding these signals at such a high amount in the place that we we're hoping to find them is exactly what we wanted to see. And so we found this in a fine grained rock that's in the delta front. And we found these organic signals um, in the same place where we're finding signals that look like they're from sulfate minerals. And that's pretty cool because on earth, um, sulfate deposits are places that you would look for high concentrations of organic matter to be preserved, and they can also harbor signs of life. So it's letting us know that we're closer. Okay, so the treasure map is filling in, and we're getting closer. How do we actually, you know, start looking for the X? We got to bring these things back, right? And that's part of the plan is to, to to fire them off back to back here to Earth. When when does that happen? Yeah, hundred percent. Like the the way to get to the X is Mars sample return. So this is great. We're like getting all the clues, putting it all together. Mars sample return will be the big X and answer hopefully a lot more about all of these samples. So um, getting these samples back will probably be around the twenty thirty ish time frame. So um, there's a whole Mars sample return campaign that's in the plans right now, and it has several different components. Perseverance is the first part of it. And then as we're moving forward, there'll be several different launches that happen in the late 2020s. And then we're hoping to get these back in the early to mid 2030s. And how risky or is it risky? Is it to bring this material back to Earth? I mean, what could I keep thinking? What could possibly go wrong? And then I think, oh, I don't know. Like, let's look at the pandemic. <laughs> we didn't do a very good job containing the coronavirus. Space germs are yeah. coming. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, no, it's a really important question. It's a really, really good question because, of course, this is a first. It's exciting, but first, they're also scary. So um, <laughs> we have a great program in place here at NASA that focuses on planetary protection. And so a lot of the engineers and scientists have taken time to specially design capture and containment systems. And it's worth noting that we don't think the conditions on the surface of Mars right now are conducive to life. So this mission, Perseverance, the Mars 2020 rover, ooh, sorry, <laughs> is looking for... Um, uh, signs of ancient life. So we're not looking for anything currently alive on the surface. But you're not looking for it, and you say that you don't think that the surface now would support it, but do we know, are we confident in, enough in our own sort of, you know, physics, I suppose, and biology, mm -hmm. to know that if we bring something back that perhaps is in, inanimate on the surface of Mars, that somehow it wouldn't reanimate here? Yeah, so I think that it always comes back to a question of risk, and we can only go by the data that we know. So we're reducing the risk in a few ways. First, we don't think any from the, anything from the surface would have life in it. Second, we have the capture and containment system that's designed. Third, we're not going to open the samples until we're sure that we're minimizing risk in every possible way. And we have a lot of precautions in in place here. So there'll be a lot of sample containment. So we think there's a very low probability that anything wrong would happen. 
Sunanda Sharma, mission scientist, NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. We'll call you in like eight years when this yeah. uh, thing comes up. You're thinking of the little black blob from like Spider-Man, you know, when it attaches, it comes from space and it turns somebody evil? No, I'm, th- I'm, thinking, I'm thinking of her very last phrase, low probability. <laughs> yes. we, this is why we have planetary protection, Charles. Sounds that, very Star Trek. There, be I a love cool, it. Wouldn't that be a cool job? What do you do for a living? Card? Oh. <laughs> I'm a chief planetary protection officer. Yeah, wow. Okay. (laughs) More in depth next week. We'll see you Monday.